Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Can you hear me okay in the back? Okay, I realize we've been disrupted by construction, so um, I apologize for that. Matthew chapter 7. There was this, um, this time when I was in high school, uh, sitting down enjoying uh, my lunch. It was my, my beef patty, which I ate every day in high school, um, with my friends. And, and my one friend who was uh, sitting across from me had an unfortunate experience. Uh, one of the pimples on his forehead popped. And he was completely unaware, and it began to drip down his forehead. You can imagine the moment. And there I was, trying to eat my lunch, wondering if he was going to notice, and he never noticed. And so then I started thinking, well, uh, should I tell him? I have to tell him. And so I ended up telling him, and he, he cleaned it up, and that was that. But what's important to see from that story is that He was completely unaware. He was completely oblivious to the fact that he had some stuff flowing out of his forehead, dripping down his forehead. I saw it, but he didn't see it. He was blind to this reality. And I think that captures so powerfully what Jesus conveys here in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. It's easy for you and I to see the spinach in another man's teeth, but we're completely blind to the spinach stuck in our own teeth. And so I want us to look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. Let's read this together, and then I will pray. Jesus says this, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Let's pray. Father, as we look to your word now, we truly do ask that you would illumine our minds, give us hearts that are sensitive to your spirit and to your word, that we might respond rightly to it, receive it, believe it, and seek to live by it for the glory of your Son, and for the good of your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, we have seen that the core of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus articulating this greater righteousness than that of the Pharisees that his disciples are called to strive for and live by. This greater righteousness, as we've seen, is whole person behavior. That is, your inner heart is in line with your external actions. 
There is a, a harmony between the two. This whole person, right, whole person behavior that leads to flourishing both in this life and in the next. And we've seen Jesus articulate this greater righteousness in relation to different things. So we saw, for example, uh, Jesus articulate this greater righteousness in relation to the law or the Torah in chapter 5, verse 21 to 47. And then next we saw Jesus articulate this greater righteousness in relation to piety or devotion to God. And we saw that in chapter 6, verses 1 to 21. And last week we saw Jesus articulate this greater righteousness in relation to the goods of the world in chapter 6, 19 to 34. He warns us there against the love of money and also the worries and anxieties of our basic needs. And now we come to chapter 7. And here in chapter 7 we could say that Jesus from Verses 1 to 12 is articulating this greater righteousness in relation to others. In other words, how this righteousness, this whole person behavior, impacts how we relate to other people, our interpersonal relationships. And just like in the other sections, you have a thesis statement or or the main point, so to speak, and then several examples to illustrate that main point. So here in chapter 7, the main point is found in verses 1 to 2, and then he provides a few examples, and then he gives a summary statement, just like in the other sections, in verse 12. The summary statement is verse 12 where Jesus says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. And so this morning, we're going to focus on verses 1 to 5. See, though verses 1 to 2 are the main point, what follows in verses 3 to 5 is directly linked to verses 1 to 2 in a way that the other verses are not. And so let's look at the main point, and then we'll look at the outrageous example that Jesus provides in verse 3 to 5. So the main point is verses 1 to 2, and and here's a way, or here's a good way I think we could summarize what Jesus is conveying in verses 1 to 2. Do not be a person who judges unfairly or harshly. Do not be a person who judges unfairly or harshly. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Judge not that you be not judge. Now this is a very well-known statement. Even the worst of pagans can quote this verse when you tell them of their need for repentance and faith in Jesus. It's quoted often, but is deeply misunderstood. There might not be a verse more misused and misinterpreted in all the Bible. And so it's important we understand specifically what Jesus is actually saying when he tells us to not judge others. And in order to really understand what he means, we need to first understand what he doesn't mean. There are two ideas regarding this command that have almost become universally accepted, but these two ideas aren't remotely what Jesus is teaching. 
The first error has to do with um, how we in our English-speaking world understand and interpret the word judge. We have reduced this word to one meaning, and therefore we unfortunately often misinterpret this word when we see it used in the Scriptures. When we hear the word or the saying, do not judge, we usually interpret or understand that to mean do not condemn. In other words, anytime you judge someone, you are condemning them. So when people say you have no right to judge me, what they're really saying is you have no right to condemn my actions and my choices. Judge has come to mean exclusively condemn. But the actual word judge in the Greek and also in English has a far greater semantic range than simply the word condemn. The word judge has a more general sense of evaluating something, discerning something, separating or deciding upon something. This is why we call uh, those who are responsible for justice in society, we call them judges. It's not simply that they enact condemnation. No, no, they're called to evaluate, discern, and conclude what is just in the given situation. They're to judge in such a way that they reward the good and punish the bad. You see, whether you realize it or not, we judge all the time as humans. If you're responsible for hiring people, you have to judge the potential employees and decide which person should get the job. We do this with friendships as well. You judge, you discern, you evaluate whether or not this person you're speaking to can be trusted. And if you're married, you've done this as well. You judge your potential spouse. You can look at your spouse and say, you judged me. You judged your potential spouse to discern whether or not they would be a good husband or a wife. You judge their appearance, their personality, their character. And based upon those judgments, you chose to marry them or you chose to no longer pursue them. If you didn't judge them, I would call you very foolish. We all do this right now. You are judging my sermon. In fact, you judged my sermon and discerned whether or not you wanted to come to this church. You judgmental people, right? That's what we do. So when Jesus says, do not judge, he's not simply saying, do not condemn, as we'll see. The other error with this statement is that people use this statement as a totalizing or universal point. In other words, people will interpret all the Bible through this lens and suggest that it's never appropriate appropriate to judge another human. It would be arrogant to do so. There's a totalization of the statement over one's, Christi- one's Christianity. But that's not remotely what Jesus is trying to convey when he tells us to not judge. And there are several reasons for why that's the case. For one, Jesus in verse 6 demands 
that we learn to discern, judge between those who are dogs and pigs so that we don't give to dogs what is holy and don't throw our pearls before pigs. That requires a level of judging, discerning. The same is assumed in verses 15 to 20 of chapter 7, where followers of Jesus are called to discern between those who are wolves and those who are sheep. The fact is, Jesus calls his disciples to judge between those who are good and those who are evil. And so to take this statement, do not judge, in a totalizing fashion, makes it, as Pennington says, incoherent with the rest of Jesus' teaching, including in Matthew itself. So that's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't simply mean do not condemn. And it doesn't mean that you're never to judge ever. So what does it mean? What is it that Jesus is actually telling us not to do? Well, I think Pennington is right when he says that verse 1 should be translated as do not judge unfairly, lest you be judged the same way. Do not, be, do not judge unfairly, lest you be judged the same way. Don't judge harshly, unfairly, so that you won't be judged harshly or unfairly. Or as Hagner puts it, one should not judge others more harshly or by a different standard than one judges oneself. See, it's, it's really the sin of censoriousness. To judge someone severely and unfairly while not holding yourself to that same standard. It's to stand over someone and always see the worst. It's to assume the worst of people's motives and intentions. It's to be unfairly critical of others while always granting yourself an excuse for your behavior. You see, Jesus says here, brothers and sisters, don't do that. Don't be like that. Don't live like that. And he tells us why we ought not to. He gives us a warning in verse 2 for living with that kind of judgmental spirit. Verse 2, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, I think Pennington nails it when he says, In the God-ordained nature of the world and in His active justice, people will reap what they sow. People will reap what they sow. In other words, God has so structured and ordered the universe that if you're living with a condemning, judgmental spirit, always harshly criticizing others, you then will be judged in the same way. It's really this idea of poetic justice. We see it all the time in human history and in our own experience, but also in the Bible itself. You reap what you sow. So for example, Samson sinned horrifically because of his lustful eyes. What happened to him? The Philistines plucked out his eyes. Absalom gloried in his hair. And it's not a coincidence that he was hung by his hair and died. That's what we call poetic justice. 
David destroyed a family. He destroyed a marriage between Uriah and Bathsheba. And for the rest of his life, he experienced horrific family conflict, even though he had been forgiven by God. You reap what you sow. If you judge unfairly, harshly, then know you will also be judged in like fashion. Or as John Stott puts it, if we enjoy occupying the bench, we must not be surprised to find ourselves in the dock. See, this is the main idea that Jesus is conveying as he articulates this greater righteousness in relation to others. Because remember, the Pharisees were the very definition of judging others unfairly and harshly and not holding themselves to that same standard. They had a censorious spirit. And Jesus is saying that if you're going to have a righteousness that is greater than that of the Pharisees, then you must not be like them in how they judge others. Followers of Jesus are called to be generous in their judgments. Yes, they are called to judge. They are called to evaluate. They are called to discern. But they are to do so fairly and rightly and generously. A disciple of Jesus is to judge others with the same standard that he or she would judge himself or herself. Do not, followers of Jesus, judge unfairly and harshly. Now, in Jesus making his main exhortation, he then provides an example. And it's an outrageous example, but it captures so powerfully what we as humans are like. See, the reality is, we don't often judge fairly. In fact, we tend to be quick to see the sin in others and to judge that sin while being blind to our own sin and lacking criticism of self. And that's what Jesus conveys in the example he provides of the speck and the log in one's eye. Look at verses 3 to 4. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? Now there are a few things we need to see in this illustration. For one, in verse 3, Jesus asks a question about our sight. And the question can be summarized quite simply like this. Why is it so easy for us to see the little flaws in others while being completely blind of the giant flaws in ourselves. You don't notice the the giant log in your own eye. You're blind to it. But for some reason, you're able to see the speck of dust in your brother's eye. Why is that? Jesus says. Well, here's why. Because in our sinful nature, we're often blind to our own flaws because deep down, we love ourselves way more than others. My greatest admirer is me. Your greatest admirer is you. We love to provide excuses for our own character flaws 
while never allowing excuses for others. We want forgiveness for ourselves, but not forgiveness for others. And this is why Jesus exhorts us to not judge unfairly or harshly because we are prone to it. Our hearts are prone to it. We're able to see the spinach in another man's teeth, but be completely unaware of the spinach in our own teeth. As Stott so powerfully says, we have a fatal tendency to exaggerate the faults of others and minimize the gravity of our own. We have a rosy view of ourselves and a jaundiced view of others. I've only been in pastoral ministry uh, for about eight years, if you include my time at Grace Fellowship and also my short time in Ottawa. Yet in those short years, I've had experiences of dealing with Christians who have had conflict with another Christian. And I'll tell you what is completely rare when situations like that come up. It's completely rare, almost non-existent, when a Christian has spoken with me about some conflict she has with another Christian for her to ever suggest that the main reason for the conflict is due to her own flaws rather than the flaws of the other person. It's very rare for that to happen. What is quite normal is for her to meet with me and for the next 45 minutes explain to me that the conflict she has with this other person is due to the character flaws of that individual. And there's almost never a moment of self-reflection thinking about why she might have a role to play in this conflict due to her own character flaws. It's truly incredible. But we all have this tendency We all have this tendency to assume the worst in others while assuming the best in ourselves. We see the worst in others and love to see the best in ourselves. The second thing we need to see is based on the second question Jesus asks in verse 4. Not only do we tend to see the sins of others while being blind to our own sin, but we also tend to be eager to deal with other people's sins rather than our own. Look at verse 4. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You see, we're far more zealous in trying to correct the sins of others rather than correcting our own sin. We'll be willing to amputate another man's arm, but we won't amputate our own arm. See, I think the last three years has captured this so powerfully. To be honest, it was surprising, surprising to see so many pastors on either side feeling the need to call out the actions of other pastors in regards to their COVID response. It was weird to see pastors assume the worst when it came to the intentions and motives of other pastors and their decisions. But let's be frank, it's not as though pastors are somehow immune to such a temptation. And it was also common amongst Christians as well in general. Assuming the worst of people's motives 
making our judgments unfairly while thinking ourselves to be always in the right in regards to that stuff. See, why do we always feel the need to remove the speck of dust from our brother's or sister's eye while being very content to not deal with the log in our own eye? The Scriptures are full of examples of this. We saw this in the the Scripture reading this morning with Judah and Tamar. Judah had no problem, no problem, paying for a prostitute who happened to be his daughter-in-law, but when he found out she was pregnant by immorality, he was ready to have her burned to death. He was ready and eager to remove the speck from her eye while he had a log in his own eye. But the same is true of David. Do you remember when God sends Nathan the prophet to confront David over his adultery and murder? This is what we read. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. Of course, David's the rich man, and Uriah's the poor man. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it And it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eye and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun for you did it secretly but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan Nathan went to his house. David was ready to put the man, to put to death the man who stole the lamb, completely blind to the reality that he was that man. This is what we do. This is who we are. Husbands, how often do you see the speck in your wife's eye while neglecting the giant log in your own eye? 
wives. How often do you try to fix or criticize the flaws of your husband while not realizing there are some very unpleasant things about you? Siblings, I have no doubt you could tell me everything that's wrong with your brother or your sister. But what about you? Kids, I have no doubt that you could tell me all the flaws of your mom and dad. But what about you? We are so eager to remove the speck from another's eye while neglecting the log in our own eye. And this is why Jesus says in verse 5, You hypocrite. You hypocrite. This theme of hypocrisy comes up time and time again in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is primarily using it in reference to this whole person righteousness. That is, the Pharisees were hypocrites because though they kept the law externally, their hearts were hardened and their motives were wrong. And Jesus here is alluding to the same reality. If you're seeking to remove the speck from another brother's or sister's eye while not seeing the log in your own eye, it demonstrates that you haven't been examining the state of your own heart. Most likely because the condition of your heart doesn't really matter all that much to you. You'd rather be correcting others than focusing on seeing yourself transformed and changed. As Pennington says, this hypocrisy is yet another example of the sermon's theme of wholeness. Righteousness requires consistency between one's inner person and one's outer actions. Discerning the state of another without first examining one's own heart is a dangerous and deadly business precisely because it is a kind of doubleness. Of doubleness. So what is the solution to all of this? How do we make sure that when we judge, we're judging fairly, we're judging fairly, generously, and not harshly? How do we avoid the spirit of censoriousness? Does it mean that we should therefore never help remove a speck from a brother's eye? Does it mean that we should never judge ever? Well, no, that's not the answer. Jesus provides the answer in verse 5. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, a few things that Jesus alludes to here in this verse. First thing that I want you to notice is that Jesus doesn't forbid you from helping remove the speck from your brother's or sister's eye. But he says there must be some things that you do first before you help remove the speck from your brother's or sister's eye. So let me just say this. If you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, it means that you must be willing to allow your brothers and sisters to help remove specks from your eye. If your thinking is, I'm a follower of Jesus and only Jesus can judge me. You're not thinking like a Christian. Sometimes we need our fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord to tell us that we got some spinach in our teeth. 
And instead of getting defensive, we ought to listen and thank them for showing us some things that we were blind to. You ought to have a few Christian brothers or sisters who will tell you the truth for the sake of your own soul. For there are things you don't see about yourself that others do see, and they can help you in your path of sanctification. I remember a, a, a dear friend, a, a pastor, I know I won't say his name, but he told me this story, I don't know if I've told this story before, where um, there was this older couple, couple that started coming to the church, and for whatever reason, uh, the, the wife, every Sunday after church, would go up to, let's just call him Pastor Bill, would go up to Pastor Bill and complain about something different every single Sunday about the service whether it was the music one Sunday or the sermon the other Sunday or, or whatever it was, she just always complained and grumbled about the service. And Pastor Bill graciously endured it for quite a few weeks. And then finally, he had enough. And he said to her, enough. I'm done listening to your grumbling and your babbling. I'm done with it. He's like, in fact, I question whether or not you're even saved. Because if a Christian grumbles this much, I don't know how you can have the Holy Spirit. Well, she was deeply offended. And she left with her husband. And she then called all her girlfriends, saying, can you believe Pastor Bill said this to me? I mean, this is so inaccurate. And slowly but surely, each of his, her girlfriends told her, in fact, it is true. You are like that. But none of them had the courage to tell her until Pastor Bill finally confronted her about it. Remember these words from Proverbs 27, 5 to, 6, 5 to 6. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. See, if you don't want friends who will wound you, it probably means you don't actually want friends. Not true friends. You want people who simply affirm you and coddle you in every way. See, Jesus doesn't forbid you from removing the speck in another person's eye. And therefore, brothers and sisters, sometimes we need to allow our brothers or our sisters to help us see the speck that is in our eye. But He also does say, that there are some conditions that one must meet before one goes to remove the speck from another brother's eye. As he says, first, take the log out of your own eye. Before you examine the eye of another to help them remove their speck of dust, you better first do a whole lot of examination of self in order to deal with your own sin first. We better be far more devoted to dealing with and killing sin in our own lives before we ever think that we have the right to help remove sin in another person's life. You see, the reason we often judge unfairly or harshly is because we haven't done enough self-examination before we've gone and judged others. And if we do some serious self-examination, 
it would and it should make us a little more generous in our judgment of others. As Hagner says, the obvious implication is that an awareness of one's own faults will make more charitable one's judgment of others. We know this from from personal experience. We naturally tend to be far more compassionate towards those who struggle with the same sins we struggle with, right? For example, uh, it's really hard for me personally to have real sympathy and compassion for people who struggle with drunkenness. I just don't get it. I, I enjoy a nice glass of wine, but I've, I've never been drunk, and it, and it just doesn't make sense to me. I, I lack compassion with this sin because this is not one sin that I struggle with. But I've shared this before, that I was exposed to hardcore pornography at the age of 10. And I have a lot of compassion for both men and women who struggle with sexual temptation and pornography because I can relate to what they've experienced. The more aware we are of our own shortcomings and failures, the better we will be in judging others fairly and not harshly. The more generous we will be in our judgments. Since I became a dad, I am way more generous to my dad in regards to how he parented me because I realize how hard it is now. We need to be more aware of our own shortcomings. This is a call, as Pennington says, to examine oneself with humility, become aware of one's faults, and repent. Only then Can one be in a place to hope to see things clearly? Only then will we be in the proper place to help another brother or sister with the speck in their own eye. Brothers and sisters, as I've mentioned throughout this series, Babylon is at work in our society. The spirit of Babylon is at work in our society. And Babylon is all about seeing the speck in another man's eye while ignoring the log in your own eye. Babylon is all about judging harshly and unfairly. And Babylon needs to see Christians who don't ever avoid judging altogether, because that's impossible, but rather judge from a spirit of love and generosity. Babylon has rubbed off on us, and we need to hear Jesus' words to the men who were ready to cast their stones upon the woman caught in adultery. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And as you know, each man from the oldest to the youngest dropped their stone and walked away. We need to be reminded of the mercy and compassion that Jesus has even in his judgments. May God give us the humility to deal with ourselves first before we ever attempt to deal with the sin of others. Let's be known for log killing rather than speck removing. Let's be known for log killing rather than speck 
removing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you that you are a generous judge. That you judge fairly and rightly. That you never judge unfairly or harshly or severely. You always judge according to your perfect justice. And I pray that we as your people, as representatives of you in this world, would learn to judge like you judge, fairly, honorably, and generously. And that, Lord, each and every single one of us would be far more devoted to killing sin in our own lives than always focusing on the sins of others. Help us with this, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.